If the fetus isn't alive, why do you need to do an abortion? Once you have a baby growing inside of you, you've already reproduced. So the choice that you had to whether or not you want to make a baby is no longer there. You've made one. Viability changes with technology. So that's one reason to think that it's not a good measure of whether you're a person. And so the words baby, fetus, and embryo simply tell us how old an entity is, not what an entity is. They're donating money to an organization that they are trying to argue needs federal funding. Planned Parenthood does not need your tax dollars. Human rights aren't grounded in age, they're grounded in being human. It is a baby. It looks like a baby. It moves like a baby. It has its own DNA. It feels pain. It recoils. That is a baby. Yes, there is a fact at a point when a child can survive outside of the womb. But why does that matter? Who cares? There's no denying the difficulty in these circumstances. The question is, what ought we do when circumstances are hard? What's up, fighters? Josh back here with another episode of the Fight for Life podcast. And this week, I've got um, an interview for you guys that I did with Scott Newman a little while back. And Scott hosts the Inalienable podcast and writes a little bit for Human Defense Initiative. So, Um, I hope you enjoy this interview. I had a great time doing it. All right, here we go. All right, hey everybody, Josh here, and I am with Scott Newman today, the host of the Inalienable podcast. Scott, welcome. Thanks, Josh, for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So um, you host the podcast Inalienable, and we're going to talk about that some, but before we get into that kind of give me a little bit of your background how you got to this position have you always been pro-life or is it something that came that you came to at a certain point um i've definitely always been i would say i've always sort of leaned pro-life and i think as a lot of people do especially people who grow up in you know in the midwest or in conservative households um but i also think that even people who outwardly identify as pro life don't often really understand the implications of what that title means and i certainly didn't uh for for you know most of my young adulthood i i really came to the conclusion that i was pro life probably my sophomore year of college or so um in fact i i uh, remember my freshman year of college i had a conversation about abortion with one of my more liberal leaning friends and I don't remember exactly what the conclusion was that we came to, but we both sort of reached a consensus that was very middle of the road, including a lot of exceptions, sort of a, uh, you know, I don't really like it, but it should be legal kind of thing. So that shows you exactly how far I've come now that I've actually put a fair amount of thought into it. Um, as far as my background goes, I have always been political sort of in nature. I, I was always that annoying political high school kid who thought he was smarter than everybody <laughs> else. Um, I, I've come to realize now that many of my uh, my opinions have changed significantly since then, which I'm glad they have. Um, but, uh, politics has always been, you know, a small part of my life. And then once I started getting more into the, uh, the pro-life element of my, uh, my philosophy here, I joined up with uh, students for life at my college campus. Um, it was a really, uh, fun, active group. It was, it was heavily Catholic, which I'm Catholic and it drew me in, in that regard. And then, uh, I was only with them though, in a, in a limited capacity for a short period of time. In fact, I only was able to help them organize one event and we brought Melissa Odin and Matt Walsh to our campus, um, which was a, it was a fun event, but that's, that's basically the extent of my involvement there. Um, and it ended up leading to me getting a job with a guy running for Congress here locally. Um, and that's where I've been ever since I worked on that campaign, uh, in, in, I want to say it was 2015 
through the 2016 election. And then I worked on that campaign um, again when he was up for re-election in 2018. And then since then, I've been working um, working at a different employer that I can't really go into details with. But definitely it has led me into more of a, uh, a political atmosphere. And that's where I've been ever since. Gotcha. And then, um, so um, when did you start with, I guess, because you're also with the Human Defense Initiative. Human Defense sure. Initiative as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I started with the Human Defense Initiative. Um, I don't actually remember when I started really <laughs> writing with them because it was really just kind of a every now and again, I had some free time. I'd, I'd write an article and, and I think I only have still on their website, only a couple articles written, you know, written pieces that are posted there because um, I was never really heavily involved with them. It was, it was just kind of a, in my free time, this is what I did. And that all changed when um, I decided to you know, reach out to them about their interest level in allowing me to host uh, this podcast. I've uh, I've done a couple podcasts just kind of for fun uh, with some friends. Uh, we we had one that was relatively successful that was kind of a, a comedy style podcast, like it was it was not serious at all, just kind of entertainment. And then I also have some experience doing radio here locally, and so I've always had an interest in this area. And I thought that uh, you know maybe my my skill in this regard might be more beneficial to HDI than my writing. And so I reached out to see if they'd be interested in allowing me to do it. And, uh, you know, with a, a couple conversations and a couple negotiations, uh, they decided it was good. And I think we are on, um, I'll probably post this episode as our 19th or 20th episode. Very cool. So tell us a little bit for, for anyone who doesn't know about HDI and kind of like um, what their goal and mission is and stuff. Sure. Well, HDI kind of has two sides. Um, and when I first started with them, I definitely viewed them as more of, um, sort of an advocacy network. So you, you go onto their website and you'd find articles. Um, there were, there was some sort of news articles. This is what's happening in the pro-life movement, but there was a lot of advocacy, you know, a lot of, this is what a pro-lifer should think. And this is why. And I, I was really attracted to that because though there are, you know, there's no shortage of opinions online, um, a lot of, you know, specifically pro-life positions that delve into the philosophy of it, uh, that's, that's pretty rare. And so I was, I was attracted to HDI at the outset um, in, in that element, especially because that's what I feel like I've continued to do. But um, throughout my time there, I've, I've noticed that sort of what I do and what a lot of the folks do there is much less important than what HDI is beginning to transition into. And not to say that it's not important because obviously I do it. So I think that it's somewhat important at least. But um, what they do now is function as a sort of virtual pregnancy center. You know, they have all sorts of resources for single mothers, uh, for mothers who are in difficult situations, um, you know, for families that are, that are having issues uh, paying for things. They do you know, fundraisers, they do diaper drives, they, uh, you know, they organize all sorts of um, I forget the word I'm looking for, but you know, essentially people can, can donate. It's like a, like a gift registry kind of situation, uh, where you can buy, um, you know, cribs and, and diapers and other things like that. Um, and like crowdfunding. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Crowdfunding for, for little things like that, for families that, that reach out to HDI saying, Hey, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a bind, I'm a single mother, um, and I need help. And credit to, um, I always like to give credit to the, uh, executive director over at HDI, um, Skyler. Because uh, she uh, she spends a lot of time making sure that those families 
are taken care of. She spends a lot of time making sure that those things are advertised properly. So as uh, you know, to provide the, the best results possible for those people that are in need. And so HDI does kind of have those two sides where, you know, we do sort of what I do, which is the advocacy side. Um, but then they do to me what, you know, the most important work, uh, which is actually helping real families in need, which as, as you know, in the pro-life movement, we're often accused of sort of avoiding that part of it. We're accused of, you know, walk it or uh, talking the talk, but not walking the walk. Um, and HDI does a, a good job of making sure that we can't be um, accurately accused of that anyway. Yeah. You're only pro birth. You don't care yeah, about exactly. moms and, and born children. Yeah. That's what we hear all the time. Um, well, cool. And so something unique about HDI is um, that they don't pay anybody Correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I read um, in my ad read for all the podcasts. Um, and the reason we say that is because when you end up, you know, there, there's nothing wrong with having, you know, a publication or a website, whatever, where you pay you can, your contributors. But inevitably, you'll run into this issue where, you know, somebody's up against a deadline, they haven't started a piece, um, and they, they rush something out just for the purpose of making that deadline and getting a paycheck. HDI doesn't run into that problem because it's entirely volunteer based. Um, every single person who contributes to the website does so on a volunteer basis. And uh, that's how you know that every person who is involved really cares about those issues and actually is affected by them in, in some you know way, shape or form. And so, as I say, you know, in every episode, that's the best way to get good content. You have people who actually care about this stuff that are that are. You know, spending their free time writing and talking about it because they think it's important. And uh, that's, that's much better than just paying someone to put words down for the sake of getting paid. Cool. Um, you know, I, the other thing I noticed is that, that you say a lot and, and that I notice on their website is um, this idea of being millennial led. Uh, why does that matter? I think it matters um, primarily because, you know, we, we hear often that we are the we are the most pro-life generation uh, since Roe v. Wade. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't have any stats in front of me, but it, it certainly feels like that's the case. It feels like there are people that are our age. Um, you know, I don't know exactly how old you are, Josh, but I assume we're relatively close in age, um, both millennials at least. And yeah. I, I feel as if um, people are much more... Go ahead, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, did you play Oregon Trail? In, <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. As a young kid, I, I feel like that's the high end of millennials. Yep. That's kind of where I market, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, we. Uh, I definitely feel like um, there are a lot of people our age that are very open to the pro-life position. And I feel that as we've gotten older um, and as more and more of our generation moved into adulthood, the pro-life position has become much more prevalent in politics. And that that may or may not be actually true, but that's that's certainly what it feels like. So the idea that it's millennial-led is, um, you know, it, it's also important in part because when someone thinks of the pro-life movement uh, in a derogatory way, they sort of think of the the old white woman, the old white Catholic woman who doesn't, you know, in, engage with people our age, um, and and this is just a person who is, you know, opens the Bible and does whatever God says sort of situation, um, and and when you say that this is millennial led, what you realize is that there are people our age, there are people with real lives who are reasoning through this stuff. And yes, maybe faith plays a, plays a part in it for some people. Maybe it doesn't for others, but ultimately I think it, uh, it lends credibility to the idea that we are all, um, you know, thinking for ourselves and coming to these conclusions on our own. Yeah. And, and this is, um, not quite there yet as like the primary part of the working force. I mean, I think we're mostly talking about mm -hmm. America here, but, um, but up and coming and, and, and 
coming into being the primary drivers of the um, whatever you want to call that marketplace of ideas and, and the a majority of the workforce soon, if not yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the, these ideas are going to only become more and more prevalent. Um, and that's why I think it's important you know, to continue to drive, uh, to engage millennials on this stuff. Because you know, I, I am sort of notoriously pessimistic about virtually everything, and uh, the pro-life movement is no exception. Whereas you know, I, I recognize that I think um, we are the most pro-life generation since Roe v. Wade, but what does it mean to be pro-life? And I kind of alluded to this at the beginning. Just because someone goes to the March for Life doesn't mean they can effectively um, articulate the pro-life position or defend the pro-life position in any real way. It doesn't mean that they've actually sat down and thought through it to its logical conclusion on their own. Um, in most cases, I would say people are, you know, they've, they've been drawn into the movement for one re- reason or another. Maybe their family was involved with it. Maybe their friends got involved with it and all that's great. Um, but ultimately we got to keep pushing people our age to continue to get involved and not only to get involved, but to, to challenge themselves, um, in an intellectual way so we can make sure that we are involved for the right reasons, not just for the sake of being involved. Uh, and, and when you say that, what do you consider the right reasons? That's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know it is. <laughs> um, ultimately, I think the the logical conclusion of the pro-life position is that human life is valuable and that value is inherent and inalienable. Um, you know, one, one of the things that's interesting to me is, and maybe, again, this, is, this could just be my pessimism talking, but a lot of the pro-lifers that I talk to, not, you know, outside of maybe a religious context, um, you'd ask them, what is the nature of human value? You know, how do you answer that question? Because there are, there are ultimately a whole host of explanations, you know, potential explanations anyway. Um, you know, we, we could say that from a, from a sort of theistic perspective um, where we are created in God's image, I, which, which is the perspective that I subscribe to, um, you know, we were created for a purpose and we were created with value at, that is a necessary element of the human condition, right? We were created in God's image, which makes us inherently and inalienably valuable. Um, which of course the, the logical conclusion of that is to say that human beings then it, under no circumstance possess the authority to determine that their fellow man does not have value. But that's not the only perspective though, because, um, you know, somebody, I lost my train of thought here. Um, well, that's not going to fly very well with someone who doesn't uh, subscribe to the Bible or right, doesn't right. believe in God. I mean, I, I'm right there with you. Like that's, that's where I came to originally came to my, my pro-life views. But, you know, since then I have gone back and through like trying to, um, make sure that my philosophy and my beliefs are consistent and are backed up by science and history and these things. But, but yeah, like, that's not sufficient because we, we don't live in a theocracy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing is that I think that um, it is really the only logically consistent position to take. You can say that here's, here's one of the more controversial things that I've said. Um, one, of the, one of the titles of my, uh, or the title of one of the episodes of podcast that I released is, uh, is titled, you must believe in God to be pro-life. And the reason I released that episode isn't to say that you have to be religious to be pro-life. But it is to say that in order to believe in objective human value and objective morality, you must believe in a creator God. Otherwise, everything is sort of subjective in nature. And the fact that you feel like you understand morality and the fact that you may act in accordance with morality doesn't mean that you acknowledge its existence. And the argument that I make there is um, 
somebody who doesn't believe in God uh, is is in all likelihood going to act in a relatively or perfectly normal way um, in in regard to their their sort of moral compass. But what's the reason that they're doing that? Are, are they doing it because they believe there is an objective right and wrong? Or are they doing it because some sense of morality has been built within us evolutionarily because it allows us to coexist better in a society? And that's all well and good. And a lot of, a lot of atheists will outwardly say that. Well, yeah, I, you know, I subscribe to morality because it's beneficial to me and it's beneficial to the society uh, as a whole. The problem is, though, is that when you when you recognize that our sense of morality is just an element uh, or just a result of evolutionary biology, what you're acknowledging is that morality and human value don't actually exist. We just see that they exist as a veil through which we see the world. And so you're sort of just admitting at the outset that morality and value don't exist in any real way. It's just sort of beneficial for us to pretend that they exist because then we can you know, work together better in a society. Yeah, I was, um, I actually was having a conversation with, um, some acquaintances earlier today that, uh, and, and I, you know, we, we kind of threw out this group is, is not associated with, a you know, any kind of pro-life or, or abortion debate at all. And, and it kind of came up in an, in an off topic way. And, and we were talking about it and, uh, uh, it was not the typical way that these conversations go because, I realized that they were some uh, pretty openly nihilistic people. If you're listening to this, you know who you are, and I don't wish you any ill will. But I was, I was just really kind of floored because, uh, on the one hand, it was kind of refreshingly honest because they were like, "Yeah, I guess I could see that it's that it's killing someone," you know. I was like, "Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. Well, I, I'll be honest. I'm not really sure where to go from here because." I'm used to people who pretend that it's not. Right. It's difficult to argue with someone who acknowledges that that it is an evil. And th- the point is, is that I guess they're not really acknowledging that it's an evil. They're acknowledging that it is the destruction, the deliberate destruction of innocent human life. But then they are suggesting that that is not anything that is objectively wrong. And that's where that's right. You know, this is exactly why I think that that we pro-lifers really need to focus on the the deep elements of the philosophy. Because when you have somebody that challenges you in that way, it is very difficult to respond. I, how do you convince someone that killing innocent people is wrong? If, if they haven't come to that conclusion, what, what is the next step that you can take to help them reach that conclusion? Um, it, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. And I'm, I'll be honest, I'm not sure I would know exactly where to go with that either. Um, it, to me, the best case scenario in that situation is that you have an audience surrounding you that hears that perspective and is sort of taken aback by it. And recognizes, wow, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to be a part of that camp that just sort of disavows the value of, or, or disavows morality generally. Yeah, yeah, it was weird. I'm, so, I mean, maybe I don't know. We'll see how it goes <laughs> going forward. Yeah, I guess, I guess, one thing I would say is you could challenge them on what exactly the distinction is between that unborn child and you know their neighbor. You know, would they, would they think it's wrong to break into their neighbor's house and kill them? Um, in all likelihood, that would that would drive down the path of, you know, consciousness versus, uh, you know, relatively simple organisms that will eventually develop into consciousness. And I think you'd end up going down that path. That's probably the way I would challenge it is, is, you know, show me the distinction. What is, what is the objective moral distinction between killing this human being or that human being? Um, And then usually if someone tries to create a distinction, which is not uncommon in the, uh, in the abortion movement, um, you could always come to the conclusion that, well, 
just by virtue of providing human beings with the authority to make a distinction between one subset of people versus another set of people, you are subscribing to the exact same thought process that someone like Adolf Hitler would subscribe to, right? This idea that you you can you know create a distinction between this specific group for this characteristic or this this lack of characteristic, and that is that is a very dangerous path to go down, indeed. Yeah, for sure. And then going back to kind of you were talking about the the um, distinction between or not maybe not the distinction between but but uh, it's something that I appreciate about your show is that you do also not only do you challenge the um, the pro-choice or pro-abortion or however you want to call that side but but you are pretty good about challenging the pro-lifers to be consistent in their philosophy um, you know like you said you you kind of push back on the idea that you can say that, that that you can be consistent and not believe in some kind of creator or a higher power and and hold human val- human life to be objectively valuable um and then you you also um are against the death penalty which is not common in the pro in a lot of the pro life circles mm-hmm. Yeah, the death penalty is always, uh, to me, it, I, what I've noticed about myself is that I've, I've find myself focusing on the death penalty, um, probably just as often as I do about abortion. Um, and I think part of the reason there is I like a little bit to, to challenge the status quo, because it, it, it does create a frustration. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, I, I come at this from saying that pro-lifers need to be against the death penalty, which I think is is accurate. But I also think conservatives and libertarians generally should also be against the death penalty. And, you know, the, my basic philosophy or my basic reasoning there is my pro-life beliefs, um, you know, I, I'm not pro-life just because I'm pro-life. I'm pro-life because I believe human beings are valuable and that value is inherent and objective um, and inalienable. And that's exactly the same reason why I would consider myself to be a conservative, right? All, all of my political beliefs can come back to the value of the uh, of the uh, uh, of the human being, and the the sort of elements of that value, and so I think that that's really really important. And I often challenge conservatives who are basically the sole demographic demographic of people in the country that are keeping the death penalty alive, because I think that support for the death penalty in their case is remarkably hypocritical. Um, I, I think I know what you mean, but but just kind of flesh that out. Like, in what way is it hypocritical? Well, it's hypocritical because the entire foundation of conservatism is the value of the individual. And if one is to believe that the individual is valuable, then we must believe we can maintain that value even if it is um, even if it is defied by the collective. Now think about I, I would say that the foundation of conservatism is individualism. The idea that you as an individual are valuable, the government should not impede on your value or on your rights or on your liberties. That's sort of the foundation. Now, it's not perfect in that regard. There are lots of different you know, policy positions that, that sometimes can uh, go against the grain. But ultimately, I think if you were to summarize it, that's how you'd summarize it. And the death penalty or belief in the death penalty, support of the death penalty is um, in essence a total buying into collectivism. The idea that just based on what the collective determines, you know, you you may very well forfeit your value and forfeit your right to life, um, which I think is is completely counterintuitive. If if the collective has the capability of telling you that you don't deserve to exist, then what power do you really have? I mean, if if we can if we can justly come to the conclusion 
that a person no longer deserves to live. And and I, I often make the uh, the claim that losing the right to life is akin to losing your human value because if you if you don't deserve to exist, then how how in what way are you valuable? And so if the collective gets to decide based on circumstance that you no longer possess the right to life and thus no longer possess uh, possess human value, then as an individual, knowing that the collective has the ability to do that, what authority do you have? And the other argument that I make is, you know, conservatives will use the word inalienable. Uh, Buying into the death penalty is outwardly rejecting the idea that the right to life is inalienable. And amazingly, a lot of conservatives fight back on me or fight back with me on this. They'll, they'll say, well, no, I believe the right to life is inalienable, uh, but I also believe in the death penalty. Well, if you believe in the death penalty, then you believe there are circumstances in which the right to life can be justly alienated, which, of course, is the antithesis of the word inalienable. So no matter no matter what you think about the death penalty, you have to come to terms with the fact that. Um, you know, if you're someone who supports the death penalty, then certainly you don't believe the right to life and human value generally is inalienable. And I'm amazed even, you know, just how often conservatives will fight back with me on that. Yeah. And, and just to clarify, and, and you and I are in agreement with on this because I've, I've, and I've listened to this episode, but which is different from using lethal force in a defensive self or defensive neighbor situation, because you are not <laughs> Um, you are protecting life in that instance. Right. Well, and, and I've, I've actually, in the episode that I haven't released yet, I've fleshed this out a little bit more. Um, what I, what I, the, the hypothetical that I throw into it is if, um, you know, if you're in your house and somebody breaks in, what is the reason that you use lethal force to defend yourself? Right. Do you use lethal force because you decide that that person doesn't deserve to live or do you use lethal force because lethal force is most likely in this reality to stop the threat and protect you and protect your family? I would contend that it's the latter. If we existed in some you know, sci-fi universe where you have technology that is more effective than lethal force, but it's not lethal, it, you know, it, knocks, it knocks the intruder out for a number of hours or something like that, I would say, yes, you have absolutely the moral obligation to use non-lethal force because it is more effective than lethal force. And so that's the reason why I think self-defense, uh, you know, I, I carry concealed, uh, you know, I'm, I, I carry a, a firearm with me everywhere I go. And the reason I don't believe that's hypocritical is because if I have to use that, I'm only using it because lethal force is the most likely uh, to protect me and my value and my inalienable right to life, as well as you know the innocent people around me. If I had the means to stop a threat without using lethal force, and I knew that that means was as effective or more effective as lethal force, then yes, I would have a moral obligation to use non-lethal force you know, to, to uh, get to my goal or whatever. Yeah. To, to stop a, a bad right. guy and to protect those around you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. Well, um, are, are there other areas and I'm just kind of spitballing now, are there other areas where you see that um, the I'm, I'm stereotyping here, but the general generically pro-life position, um, you know, that we need to maybe shore up some of our inconsistent philosophies. I don't know if I can think of anything off the top of my head. I've spent a lot of time trying to sort of flesh out the individual um, arguments. I guess if I were to criticize, and this is, if you've listened to the show, then this is nothing new to you because I I say this a lot. Um, But if I were to criticize the pro-life movement, it's not really, it's not really our fault, but the pro-abortion crowd does everything that they can to, you know, throw us for a loop. And this is why there are so many different pro-abortion arguments. I mean, there's, there's um, rape and incest. There is, uh, overpopulation. There's this and that, you know, a million different things that are all silly. But um, ultimately, 
the the primary contention between the pro-life group and the pro-abortion crowd is what is the value of the unborn child? Is that unborn child a human being with rights and value or is it not? And, you know, I, I tend to think that if you are having a conversation with someone who is pro-abortion and you are dancing around that question, which that's that's usually the goal of the pro-abortion person within the conversation is to is to not get to that question. Um, and if you find yourself dancing around that question, you're wasting your time. You need to do everything that you can to, to, to narrow the conversation down. And you can even bring it down to science. Um, you know, if, if it's someone who would respect the idea that, um, or, or you think you're most likely to convince them by convincing them that it is biologically a human being, which of course it is. Or if you take a philosophical angle and say, yes, it's a human being, and this is why human beings are valuable, sort of your situation where, you know, you have to convince them that killing people is always wrong. Um, you know, those are, those are things that you have to do. And if you're dancing around that idea, if you're talking about overpopulation, if you're talking about, you know, if you're dealing with the idea that a child conceived in rape is somehow less valuable than a child conceived during consensual sex, um, then you're not, you're not answering the question and you, you really need to narrow the conversation down. I think pro-lifers need to be better about doing that. Gotcha. Yeah. That's the, that's kind of the central issue there. Um, all right. So what's, um, like, what's your, I guess, long-term goal with the, with the podcast and with the work that you're doing? That's another tough question. <laughs> um, I, uh, <laughs> I don't really know. Um, at this point, um, HDI is continuing to grow at a steady pace. Uh, the podcast is also continuing to grow at a steady pace. I think last time I looked, I think we were in, um, you know, 40, 42 out of the 50 States, something like that. Um, so, you know, we don't have a massive listener base by any means, but we are, we are continuing to move in the right direction. And I think at this point, um, really how I think about the podcast anyway, and it's, it's nice that people can listen to it and hopefully they find value in it. But from my perspective, when I'm you know sitting in my base, basement, rambling into a microphone like a crazy person, I get out of it um, a clarity of thought. You know, it, It's sort of a way that I can work out my own ideas for myself to make sure that I still believe the things that I claim to believe. Um, and as of right now, I'm trying to focus on that to make sure that I am consistent and that I'm doing the best that I can to maintain uh, you know, some, sen- uh, some sense of, of logical honesty. And I'm really espousing the things that I believe. And ultimately, I think as long as I do that and as long as pro-lifers generally continue to do that and continue to check themselves and challenge themselves, uh, the pro-life movement is going to be moving in a really good direction. And I hope that the podcast and HDI, in addition to that, will continue to be successful. Yeah, I think that's something that we all need to to do. And I, I think you got to write a careful balance here because it's easy to, I mean, that's um, a lot of what, you know, we said this earlier, but a lot of what the pro-choice side tries to throw in your face is some kind of um, hip- hypocrisy or inconsistency. Oh, well, you don't care about this or that, um, which just as an aside, having... Um, having less political affiliations with a specific party is kind of freeing in that sense, because speaking personally, I, I get to say, well, I don't know why you think I believe that. Cause I've never seen <laughs> that, but um, um, th- there, there will be things that are, you know, specifically Republican or whatever that I, I, you know, have never espoused in a conversation and they, they try and, and gotcha on, right. on me on that. But, but even, even if you do, um, I think it, 
like you said, we, we don't need to get sidetracked on that in that specific debate. But at the same time, we do need to, to look into ourselves and make sure that like we're being logically and philosophically consistent in the things that we say and the things that we do. Mm, no, absolutely. And I, I feel the same way when people accuse me of being um, a religious fanatic, because though I've, I've grew up Catholic, um, my faith is something that I've really struggled with my whole life. And it's something that I've definitely wavered back and forth a lot on. And, um, and I've really, I, you know, I, I always need to do better at exploring what I believe, but that's something that I'm, I'm certainly not uh, what one would consider to be a mindless devout Catholic. Um, I grew up Catholic. I, I, I would still probably identify as Catholic, but I'm constantly challenged in that regard. And so when people come at me and say, well, you only believe these things because you are a religious fanatic. It's just like, you know, do you have any evidence for saying that? Or are you just trying to derail the conversation? Um, I have one particular Twitter troll that likes to throw that out with everything that I say. And it's, it's, uh, it's always interesting to try and get under her skin a little bit. Yeah. I, uh, I have the benefit. I've kind of mentioned this on the show before, but like I'm a, I'm a nurse. And so I, I do have a slight benefit in going, well, I actually do kind of have multiple degrees mm-hmm. in life sciences. So I kind of know what I'm talking about. I would like yeah, to think. Right. <laughs> it's always interesting when somebody claims you don't know anything about science or you're just a, you know, a, a, a member of a cult and you can come back and say, well, yeah, actually yeah. no. And here's why. And it's, it's just interesting to see how they react because I often feel, and this is something I've said a number of times, but um, the pro-life movement is benefited in this way that we are scrutinized so much more than the, than the pro-abortion folks. I mean, it, it just seems to me to be, um, you know, basically the the standard position of pop culture to be pro-abortion. And so when somebody walks into a group of people and says, well, I, you know, I support a woman's right to choose, everyone just kind of nods along like, you know, like, uh, like lemmings. But when somebody from the, uh, the pro-life crowd says, well, no, life begins at conception – Um, then all of a sudden we have to play 20 questions. And I think that it has benefited us in the long run because ultimately if I were to put a a, a random pro-lifer in a debate with a random uh, abortion advocate, I would often side with the pro-life position, um, you know, in that matchup. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, because you're, it's a, when you take that position, you are on barring certain, I would say certain spheres or certain places where with a, a cultural, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, density mm-hmm. of that belief. Um, there, there are a few places like that and where I live tends to be more that way, but then again, it's a college town. So you also get the mm-hmm. other side too. Um, and, and with the internet, you know, like we, we also have lots of communication beyond just our geographical regions. So yeah, all that, was a tangent to agree with your point that um, we are, we are forced in general to consistently defend and understand our position in a way that um, the default position does not. Right. Exactly. And I think that one of the great things about the pro-life cause, and I've, I've noticed this specifically since I've been involved with HDI um, is that I'm finding a lot of people like you um, and, and people like me who you know, our, our goal is to sit down and have these sort of long form discussions about it. Um, and I just have a hard time finding resources like that on the pro abortion side. And I don't know if it's because there's not a demand for it or if people just aren't interested in, in sitting down and producing something like that. But I've always been a, a big fan of a format like this where we get to sit down and really hash out back and forth what the deep elements of this philosophy uh, are. Because, you know, ultimately, I think that we make the pro-life issue much more complicated than it needs to be. And the reason we do that is because we dance around the core question that we already talked about. 
Um, but there's no doubt that the philosophy of human value and the nature of human value and, and, you know, from where that's derived and whether or not it's inherent or whether or not it's created socially and whether or not it's inalienable or determined by the collective, th th these are complicated, complex questions. And I think it, it definitely behooves us, um, to use a ridiculous word there, um, but it's, it's definitely beneficial for us in the pro-life <laughs> crowd to sit down and have conversations like this. And I, I seem to find these more and more cropping up all over the place, which is, which has been great. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, what if you if you had to give someone right? I mean, obviously, besides your podcast and, and HDI, which we've already talked about, if you had to recommend someone who was just maybe just looking into this or has been, let's say, culturally said they were pro life um, because that's how they were raised or something like that, and they wanted more resources because they wanted to get more active. Um, in, in pushing this, um, you know, do you have rec specific resources that you would recommend that they listen sure. to or watch or read or anything? Yeah, well, it, it kind of depends on where you're at. Um, if you're looking for something just to explain the pro-life position, I think there are a lot of great, um, a lot of great, you know, sort of, you know, people like Matt Walsh, people like Ben Shapiro, um, you know, those folks that are really popular nowadays and have these really easy to access platforms. Um, they do, they do a great job of talking about the, the here and now politics of it. Uh, if you want to delve into the philosophy of it, it gets a little bit more complex, but I don't necessarily think you have to do that because most people come at any issue uh, with a basic understanding of, of human value and morality. Even if we can't adequately explain why we think those things, we, we sort of have an inherent understanding of them. Um, and so if you wanted to get into the why, which I do think is important, I recommend uh, people like Dostoevsky. Uh, Crime and Punishment is really, really great. Um, the Brothers Karamazov is is good. I'm only halfway through that because it's you know I, I'm not a I'm not an avid reader, and so when I sit down to read something like that, it takes me a very long time, and I often have to reread stuff. But I definitely recommend it because we just don't have resources like that anymore. Uh, you know that that level of writing is uh, is really hard to come by. Anything C.S. Lewis writes um, is obviously great, and I definitely recommend all those. <clears throat> And, and that is more, you're saying that's more just like on the, the nature of human value or does it, I, I haven't run into anything on sure. C.S. Lewis that's specifically like abortion Well, I think that he's anything. probably, I guess I, I don't know necessarily in, in his works whether or not he discusses abortion specifically, but certainly he discusses morality generally, um, which stems from this idea that, you know, we value human beings and why we ought to value human beings. And they answer that question pretty, pretty broadly. Um, but again, you know, that's, you know, reading people like that um, gives you much more of a sense of morality generally and whether or not, or, or in what case or the nature of human value and how we should treat one another and how our society should be centered around those things, which is a much more abstract concept than just, you know, this is why you should be pro-life. So that's why I think I would recommend the two sort of the, the dichotomy uh, within those resources. You, you go, go, go listen to Matt Walsh. Um, if you want to know what, what you should say in an argument with someone who's pro-abortion um, and then, you know, dive into Dostoevsky. If you want to know why you should uh, value, um, you know, human life. And, and why morality plays such a big role in our society. And then maybe what are some simple ways um, that someone can, or, or I don't know if, if I want to say simple, um, but, but what are, what are like first steps if somebody wants to start getting involved? Like, yeah. Um, the way I got involved, I think is a really good start. It depends on your, your, um, scenery. You know, if you're, if you're a college student, there are a million ways to get involved. Um, you can, you can join up a, an existing pro-life group like students for life. You can create your own. 
um, you can you can invite one one of my favorite things about college campuses and and you know post secondary education gets a lot of flack nowadays, um, but ultimately my college experience was really great because we constantly were inviting people to come on campus to have complex discussion like this, um, and I and I think that that's really valuable and really important and I for that reason I had a really great experience. Um, on campus. And I, I, I definitely recommend no matter, no matter what your positions are, invite people there that you think are intelligent and will make good arguments that you agree with. Um, go see people speak uh, that you, you know, adamantly disagree with and just sort of soak it in. That's uh, a really great way to, to form your opinions and also make connections and get involved in that way. Um, if you're really just exploring the pro-life movement and you want to, you're, you're thinking about either getting involved or even just understanding the issue a little bit more deeply. Um, you know, I may be biased, but I think HDI is a, a great resource for that. I, I really do think our podcast, you know, that's, that's the reason we created the podcast. So I really do think that that's a, a great resource for that. Even if you disagree with everything that I say, my goal is for, for you to go away thinking, okay, I may not agree, but that guy's not crazy. He's not a religious fanatic. Um, and, and I understand his thought process, even if I think he's dumb for saying it. Um, and ultimately that's, that's, that's the goal. So I would recommend all day long HDI and inalienable, uh, if that's the position that you're in. Okay. Besides HDI and, um, and the podcast, then what's maybe the best way for people to keep up with your work? You're on Twitter, right? Yeah. On Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Scott Newman 12. Um, you can also shoot me an email, uh, at Scott dot inalienable at gmail.com. Um, the, I get a lot of people yelling at me in there. I, I tend to find that, uh, most people who take the time to send an email are taking the time to argue with me, which is, which is always fun. Um, but yeah, I would definitely recommend doing that on Twitter. My DMS are open. Um, this is how we got this conversation started and, uh, I'm very much conversation oriented. So if you ever, uh, if anybody listening wants to set something up, um, or you know somebody who you think would be good. My brother actually just called me the other day and said, "Hey, uh, you know, he's not involved in politically at all, but he's got a a, a coworker or some somebody he knows through work that is um, apparently very intelligent and an ardent atheist and very much pro-abortion, um, but he's also someone who's very open-minded and wants to have a, a good rational discussion uh, for the purpose of just providing his perspective. And I'm hoping to get him on the podcast. And and so if, even if you know anyone like that." Um, definitely feel free to reach out on a, any of those platforms. And then I always say you can find my written work at, uh, at humandefense.com. Very cool. Well, Scott, um, I really appreciate your time and thanks for coming on the show. No, absolutely, man. I appreciate you having me. All right, guys, that's the interview. If you want to check out some of the things that Scott and I talked about in this, you can go to the show notes and I've got links for like Dostoevsky and C.S. Lewis's, um, Amazon pages so you can go look through some of their works. Um, those are both great authors. I've got a link to a, a YouTube video of Matt Walsh deconstructing the bodily autonomy argument. Um, and so, yeah, check out those. And then I've got links, of course, to follow Scott on Twitter. You can follow me, um, either the the Fight for Life account, which is mostly just me tweeting out when new episodes of this are available, um, and then also my personal Twitter account, which is J underscore Humphrey, except that the three is, I mean, the E is a three. So I'm just going to spell it out for you now because I've made this way more complicated than it needs to be. At J underscore H-U-M-P-H-R-3-Y. There it is. All right. Until next time, thanks and keep fighting.